Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? You, you're a star. You are, you are a star. Give yourself a pat on the back and thank you for tuning in to episode 178 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring former AFL footballer, now podcasting Baron Dylan Buckley. Lucas Weiss, the hands it up, kick from Dill no longer kicks the footy, but he has made the podcast space his own, like few people I know, like very few people in Australia, to be honest. Dill hosts his own show, Dill and Friends, which is a hugely successful podcast, Dill and Friends. It has amazing connection between Dill and his audience. Brian Taylor. Dill, how are you? Good, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Honour to have you in the studio. Absolute honour. What am I doing here? I've got no idea why I'm here. <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> I, so I remember good. you vaguely, yeah. uh, Ivanhoe Grammar Boy, and yes. of course my kids all went to Assumption. Yep. As well as Dill and Friends, Dill also hosts a podcast called List Cloggers with former Gold Coast son and Carlton footballer Daniel Gorringe. Listen to both these shows if you haven't. They are good gear. Funny boys. Funny boys. Dill has also recently moved into expanding his empire by having others host podcasts under his banner at his media business, Producey. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why I have so much admiration for Dill. I can't tell you how much admiration I've got for him. His contact in my phone, true story, is Dill Buckley, podcast star. Always makes me laugh when it pops up. He isn't the megastar athlete whose performances have allowed him to step straight into a media career. Uh Uh-uh, that's not Dylan. He has created his own media business through a combination of vision, tremendous hard work, wonderful creativity, very creative customer, some more hard work thrown in, and some real guts to go out on a limb. In fact, he's gone out on many a limb, it'd be fair to say. For those that ask the question, how do I get a job in the media? How do I get into sports reporting? How do I get into sports TV? How do I get a job on the radio? Listen to what Dylan has done, and there's your answer right there, staring you in the face. If you can't get a job, make your own. Enjoy the story of Dylan Buckley, a man on the rise. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games. A man that was an athlete. He's a man about town, but in all seriousness, I have tremendous respect for all of my guests for their athletic pursuits, but because I've understood what this man has done in the media sense, in the podcasting sense, and how hard he has worked to build a platform for himself and his mates. I'm pumped to have him on the show. His name is Dylan Buckley, and I'll say it right from the start, which I rarely say, I'm a massive fan. Dil, it is great to have you on the Howie Games, the second biggest podcast in the country behind Dylan French. Oh, I don't know about that. It's an absolute honour, mate. Um, bit of goosebumps, to be honest. Like, I'm extremely honoured to be here, and I don't say that lightly. It, it means the world. You, you know, I really, really do appreciate it. I still remember all those years ago calling you Yeah. in about 2018. Yeah, I reckon it I reckon. was. 
and just asking you about the world and, and you took my call and I was a, you know, still am a nobody, but you, um, you were extremely generous with your time and we've had a great relationship since, so I really appreciate it. I actually thought it was Nathan Buckley, but then... <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> so were like, I, I thought you were too keen to take the call, <laughs> like, to be honest, in the just first came up Buckley on the phone. I was yeah. like, oh, Nathan, this could be good. Um, <laughs> hey, I don't know how you go about researching. For some guests, I have pages of notes. For you... I've got your name, your wife's name, the fact your dad won three flags, your years for games that you played, and the names of your podcasts, uh, List Cloggers, Dylan Friends, and some of the other work you do, More Greens Golf. That, that, that is it. And I enjoy these podcasts where I don't feel like I need to be a slave to certain things I need to get to. So if I've got... I just saw Mick Doohan walk past in the studio, um, who's been on the show before. If I need to know what Grand Prix he won, and I need to know how many years he won, and uh, there's certain things I need to know about him to show the possible respect. H- how do you go about getting yourself ready to speak to a guest? That's such a good point, isn't it? Like I had a few podcasts recently, and I'm not really good with dates and remembering things. Um, and I've found through countless episodes and experience that – you almost have to go two ways. Yeah. You either have to like fully commit yes, and be like, I know these things about you, or you just go like, hey, man, like talk, tell us your story yeah. and let them do the thing. Because I found that the more I try and get real analytical and talk about what happened in 2004 and how are you feeling leading into this, you know, Grand Prix, that's not my style. Mm. I don't really watch a lot of sport. I don't – the people. the reason I talk to people isn't so much about – the performance element, it's probably about just their life and who they are away from it, yep. um, what makes them tick. And then inevitably that stuff comes out anyway. So I've found that for me, I stuff up the stats way too much. Yep. So I, I like not bringing them up. Right. Well, I don't have many stats. Yeah, well, there, you know what, mate? There's not many stats to really go through, to 41 games over 17 seasons here, but don't Eight worry about- seasons. You can't even get the stats well, right, mate. No, well, Come see, on. No, see, because you were there the, the first season when you didn't play. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't count that because I just thought you were warm-up. It was warm a warm-up year. It was a training year. It was a training year. It was a training year. A training yeah. year. Um, <laughs> hey, when uh, I spoke to you about doing this, you said you're about to go on a break because you are having a baby. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, mate. The best- you actually, you can't say the best thing in a person's life. The best thing in my life has been the kids and my relationship with my wife. How are you feeling about it? How long till you have the baby? Oh, look, yeah. Well, firstly, you know, it hasn't even happened yet. It's it's one of the, it's one of the coolest, most special, incredible things. You know, I get goosebumps even even thinking about it. Um, but yeah, the baby's coming in in the next sort of week and a half, two weeks. Wow. Um, my my wife's thirty eight weeks now, and um, yeah, it's been a long journey for us. We're really really excited for what's ahead. Um, a long journey in what way? Long journey. It probably took it, well, it did. It took us a lot longer than we thought. I think, you know, in school you get taught that you, you can't even look at a girl without something happening. Absolutely. And for us, um, yeah, we, we experienced a few troubles. Um, and when I say a few troubles, you know, it's 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 a lot. Like I didn't, I, I wasn't always comfortable talking about it, to be honest, because I was, and I want this to sound, I was, not like ashamed or anything like that, but it was one of those things that was really hard to talk about, like the uh, the battle of of fertility. Mm. And um, yeah, we had a, we had a bit of trouble early. My wife and I uh, we had two ectopic pregnancies in a row, which is like the most uncommon thing ever. Mm. Like, so you basically that's when it gets stuck in the um, fallopian tube. Yep. Um, and if you hit one of those, it's like one in a million. And to do it twice in a row, it's 
pretty uncommon and it was really scary. You know, she had to get rushed to hospital, emergency, um, emergency to, to remove one of those tubes. And after that happened, you know, it was a big thing for us. Like, fuck, is this ever going to happen? Um, and it's really scary. And that was, that was a challenging time, but we went, uh, you know, a couple of years with IVF and, um, and that didn't really work. We found some other issues, but, you know, we just stayed extremely positive and, you know, without jumping way into it so, so heavy, like it just, the respect and the love and the connection I have with my partner now is just, it's unbreakable, man. Like just seeing what she's put herself through for us and the the journey we've been on together in terms of, you know, to, to, to start a family, as anyone that's been through fertility issues would understand, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. That fear of the unknown, not knowing what's, what's happening, but um, yeah, to be expecting a, you know, a, um, a baby very, you know, very soon is, is, is exciting. It's anxious. It's nerve wracking, but there's a pretty cool story that actually how it was conceived and I won't take you through the whole details, but there's a story about like leading up to it. Right. I'm a bit with the universe, you know, like I believe in the universe and I always had this underlying thing like, oh, it's going to work it's out. Connected man. Connected man. And one day I'd had these massive calls from this guy who to this day is now one of like my very, very good friends. His name's Ali Tarai. And he kept emailing me, being like, mate, I'd love to catch up for a coffee. And you know what life gets like? I was like, mate, I don't, know if, I don't want to catch mm. up with coffee. I don't have time mm. to catch up with coffee. The coffee. Well, I don't want to get a coffee. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> coffee. Ended up getting a coffee with this bloke and I was like, I cannot be bothered like getting a coffee. But we end up vibing straight away, chatting, this, that. And he owns Future Golf, which is a company. I'm doing some golf stuff. And he's like, look, I know this is a little bit weird but I'm going to St. Andrews in two weeks. I have some spare accommodation. Do you want to come? And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm coming. Like all this, you know, we're, we're struggling at the moment. I was like, I just want to get out of here. I need to get out of Australia. I've got to say yes to these opportunities. Got to do it. When the British Open was on? When the British Open was on. So, I think we spoke just before you were going to yeah. go. You said, I'm off to St. Yeah. Andrews. I was like, man, I'm going. Yes. And everyone's like, you can't get tickets this late. I was like, nah, we okay. Somehow got like media passes to this like event. And... Anyway, we flew over. Interviewed Cam Smith in the press conference. Yep, uh, Cam, few Aussies here, mate. Um, congratulations, super proud of you. You sit outside, you know, a few beers tonight and fill the cup. Have you <laughs> estimated how many beers it's going to take in there to uh, to drink it all? I'm going to guess two. Yeah, two cans of beer. How many more guess. we have after that? Uh, I'll probably have about twenty. <laughs> 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 no, mate. <laughs> If you need me to drive you home, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> but this is just the weirdest thing, man. Like, I had not even, even been to a golf event, let alone the Open or, like, overseas to Scotland. And at St Andrews. And at St Andrews, the 150th year, like, Tiger Woods, all this weird stuff. And I'm intrigued now. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. And it's just this, like, super weird time, and I get over there, we're just um, vlogging the trip, going and playing at... Uh, you know, King's Barnes golf course. And mind you, when I say golf, I'm off like 16. I'm not a, not a very good golfer at all. I'm probably 30 now. But we get over there, having this whirlwind trip and just all these things are falling into place. And there was this underlying thing. By the way, I don't, I've known Ali for about a week and we're just connecting on all, all this stuff and talking a lot about the universe as we do. And it got to the end of that trip. I just met Cam Smith. He'd won, having this time. And I was meant to go home the next day. And I called my wife and I was like, 
you need to come over here. Like, you need to come. We need to have a good break together. Like, we're going to go away at the end of the year. And I was like, we need to get here. Is there any flights available? She's like, there's not. I don't have a valid passport. We don't have, like, time. I can't get away. It's only one flight in a week. I was like, Juz, get over here. Like, if there's a flight, book it. I don't care. We need a break. We need to get away. Because this is on this high of, like, we need to have fun with our life, you know? Yes. We can't be a, can't be brought down by all this other stuff. We need to just enjoy ourselves. This is the only time we're going to be able to go. Long story short, there's one flight left. Her passport got validated. Now, my wife is extremely intelligent, like the most intelligent person ever. And a great cook, and as a great we cook. found and find out. And at this stage, we were doing a bit of IVF. And she realized that she was ovulating. And we thought natural pregnancy was not going to happen at all. And she was ovulating. She took this injection that delayed her ovulation, like without any doctor or anything like that. Right. Flew over to um, Greece. We met in Greece. Straight into your waiting arms. We um, went on a holiday together, let our hair down, um, went had an incredible trip together, went to Hungary, to Budapest, visited her family's roots and all those sorts of things. Come back. She's pregnant. Wow. Incredible. Not with the IVF. Not with the IVF. Tell me the moment you found out. I was actually just finished playing golf. And for us it wasn't – it was a weird one because it was a – it was, we'd had been pregnant before, so it was a bit more of a like, oh, great, but we've got to yes. wait. So we had to wait and, um, yeah, we went in and had the six-week scan and when we found out it was in the right place, it was okay, but then let's get to the next, let's get to the next, let's get to the next. So, so yeah, it was. So how many scans do you felt like, right, we're having a baby? Oh, you know, a while on, to be honest, yeah. after 20. Like, wow. Yeah. A- and how, two questions, really personal questions. Yeah. How... Is it to mentally deal with it when there's something you both want and you're not able to get to that point? And as you say, it's not something, even my generation, you're a generation younger than me, even my generation, I remember when we started thinking, right, we're going to have kids, speaking to however many mates that said, oh, it took two years or um, we had problems along the way. Um, and I didn't know any of that. I just thought, yeah, yeah. But Would, but my generation probably doesn't speak about things as much as your generation does, for sure. Um, so like, what was it like when you were trying and trying and not succeeding? If that's not the right word, yeah, but. like it was it was heartbreaking. And I think for me, um, there was a I had a chat with Emma Murray, who's been an incredible support for me throughout my life, and. Renowned sports yeah. psychologist. It's a, that's probably not a full summation of what. Yeah, does, yeah, but. just incredible person. Um, and she was. She always tells stories like not. She'll tell a story about herself, but she's telling you the story. If you know what I mean. Yeah. She's talking about a time that. Um, her daughter was going through something, and she just wanted to fix it. And like the whole time, I was there just trying to fix everything. You know, like oh, let's try and feel better and do this, and. Emma made this really incredible thing. She goes, you're actually robbing someone of them growing. And that hit me really hard because I was like, this is our thing, you know, like Juz and me, like we've got to go through this. This is just like, unfortunately, it's a card that's been dealt, but yep. we grew through it. And I look back now and um, it, wasn't ple- it wasn't pleasant at all. I don't look back on it fondly. Um, but it was, you know, we've come out of it so much closer and I think there's, it's not what happens. It's how you react to it, you know. You can, you've asked me 
a while ago, I wouldn't have had that. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think just the love and respect I've, I didn't think I could love her any more than I do. You know? So this amazing perspective you get due to chatting to all these people in your podcast, your most important role in life will be to be a father yeah, and to be a husband. So what type of dad do you want to be? Hmm. It's a really good question. I have thought about this because I feel like I'm not, you know, I'm very incredibly lucky. Um, I've had an incredible upbringing. Um, you know, everyone has goes through adversity as a young, young person, but I think it's, I look back at that now and like the biggest gift I've had is my mum and dad for good and bad reasons. And the one thing that they've ever had, and like the question I always get answered, asked a lot is with like dad is like, oh, was there any pressure on you to live up to your dad or something? So like your dad, Jimmy, three-time like, premiership yeah. player for the Blues. Yeah. And I can honestly say that like, I've never had, to the point where it's actually concerning that I've just never had any pressure on me to do anything. Hmm. And it almost could have gone the other way. It could have gone an absolute dropkick. But I think my parents knew that just all they've ever given me is just eternal love, you know, like just love and support no matter what it is. Like I could have played 400 games and run four flags and my mum would be as proud as me now as if I did nothing, mm. you know, you know, not be an idiot, but she mm. just, she's just incredible like that. And my dad, you know, we'll probably speak about him maybe later, but um, he was a really big advocate for me with my footy journey. Never once did we ever have any, you know, he didn't try and give me any feedback, didn't try and get involved. The one thing that he was hard on me with and like the one message he said is you've got to set yourself up for life after footy. So how's that going to translate into that, those lessons you've learned? How's it going to translate into you being a dad? The way I bring that back is to just love them. Yeah, just love them. It's a good starting and point. Just, I don't think there's much more at this stage. Like I haven't done it yet, but I think it's just love them, back them in and know that at the end of the day, they're going to know like what's, you just got to, I think trust is probably a big thing. Like, you know, you could probably give me a lot of advice on it, but trust them when they know it. Like I think, like when I told my mum and dad, oh, I want to start a podcast business, yeah. they were like, what the fuck, is he, is he gone crazy? <laughs> like what is he doing? But I think you can see it in people's eyes sometimes yeah. when they, when they know something and you just, you just back them in. Um, so I think that's a big one. I think, um, I, I would never deign to give you advice, um, at the start of your journey. I think the thing that I experienced for the first time was a genuine understanding of fear. Mm. Not fear that I couldn't be a dad or that my wife couldn't be a mum, but fear that all of a sudden you see all these things that can happen to your child. And once they're a part of you, the thought of something happening to them or losing them is a fear like nothing you have until you're a parent. Um, I probably wasn't quite prepared for that. Um, but mate, you'll be fantastic. Well, and- it's, it's funny, isn't it? Like you do a lot of reflection on your own upbringing and like my mum, incredible. She used to message, she would pick me up from any party, any time and used to, me- you know, message when I get to a party and I always forget. And I yeah. look back now and go, I know. you idiot. Like just let them know you're all right. Mate, I, I, I went backpacking around the world and would ring my mum from South America. I'd be in Peru and say, I'm on reverse charges for a start. I'm going to Colombia. I'll ring you when I can. Mm. And this was back in the dark old days. <laughs> That's crazy. And she wouldn't hear from me for eight weeks. Yeah. And Nuts. what that must have done to Jeannie Pop and the Eagle back there, it must have been. Oh, yeah. Crazy. 
Back to Dylan in a moment. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we promoted that Greg Norman, if you don't mind, was coming on. Well, now he is coming on and he is ready to go next up on the show. He is talking all things live golf, what it's all about, why he's so convinced it will work, why he's so passionate about it, and why he has been willing to take some heavy personal blows as well as what he has learned from the experience. How have you dealt with that and how have you learnt to deal with such personal strong attacks on your character and your person? Well, it, it has been tough, Howie. There's no question. I'm not going to lie. Um, I've had an incredible heat shield. I've had so many of the players come up to me and thank me for being the heat shield for them, taking all the arrows, bullets, bazookas, whatever you want, whatever was thrown at my way. But because I've got such strong resolve and such strong belief in what I'm doing is right, I see through all that. I'm not going to let some person who's a lesser person than me who just wants to throw and, and sling shit at me, excuse my French, for it's because I made a decision in life because I love the game of golf and it's all about the game of golf and grow the game of golf to do that. I'm not going to let these individuals try and bump me off course. Hmm. Now, there's been times, I can tell you, there's been times when I wake up very early in the morning and and my wife will say to me, oh, my gosh, how are you feeling? You know, I, and, and she doesn't really, you know, uh, it, it's a lot softer now than what it was, you know, six, seven months ago. Um, so she sees it. She feels it. Um, you, know, you, you just get that right hug at the right time and, you know, okay, that's that's fair enough. And uh, But I, I feel sorry for those people. Actually, Howie, uh, anybody who wants to lambaste and prejudge somebody without knowing the facts, shame on you. That is Greg Norman, All Things Live Golf, explaining to you what it's all about next up on the show. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary conversation with an extraordinary businessman. By the way, Greg appeared on the show back on episode 14, so his full life story is there waiting for you to listen to just to tune up before you get into next week's episode. That's episode 14. Alrighty. Let's get back to Dylan. Okay. Footy. 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 Righto. Father, son. Yeah. Were you growing up, were you, oh, we're playing against Dylan Buckley. His dad was a Carlton legend. He's going to be really good. Were you that kid? Did you see that? Yeah. 100%. How, like I saw the other day, Tendulkar's son batting, and I thought, oh, heavens above. Yeah. Like, Jimmy Buckley wasn't Sachin Tendulkar, but Jimmy Buckley is a legend of the game. 100%. And, like, you know, this is not something that other people haven't experienced. You look at someone like Gary Ablett or, like, you no, know, Dacos m- boys. It's something, you know, it's common for to be able to go through. But, yes, um, I was uh, I was actually a pretty good junior, to be, to be completely honest. I used to, yeah, played well, played in all, you know, Vic teams, captain under-16s, captain the AIS, the Australian team. Um, played some, you know, really good footy and, and was was really enjoying it at that stage. Because when you're young, you just love what you're good at, you know, and, mm. like, loved, loved playing footy. Um, so, yeah, there was definitely a, a, that um, connotation, I suppose. Well, let's start with the start. Round three, 2013, your first ever kick in footy. A goal. Mm. Armfield knocking it forward. Gives an opportunity here. Buckley. She had some pace. Fantastic. First kick in footy. First goal in footy. What about that? And Dylan Buckley has come on and kicked a goal. He exploded then, Tars. Well, thinking, who's that? We haven't seen this guy before, and we haven't. That was his first kick in league footy. 
I watched it this morning, called by Brian Taylor, who is the best of the best. He's a guy I do love, Brian. I don't think he had any idea who you were. 100%. He, he had have. no idea and who you were. And it's funny because I know Brian now quite well, right. but I, I just don't even think he would know that. So, so you came on as a sub. Yeah. Um, and I could tell when he's calling it, he kicked the goal <laughs> and he's, scr- I can tell cause I've done you this. Know. You're looking on the page thinking, Who is who's that? this skinny little bloke <laughs> with the number seven on his back? Yeah. <laughs> so h- how much did it mean to you and your family to pull on the jumper that your father had worn? It meant a lot. Yeah, yeah. it did. Um, I'll touch on the point yep. about the 41 games and the, you know, eight years. And, and to be honest, I'm honored to be on the show. Cause like. For me, getting into this site, like I never thought I'd do this stuff because I didn't win the three flags, I didn't win the Brownlow, win the premiership. Those things didn't happen. But that's why you're fascinating. But that's why maybe I'm fascinating. And for me, as I spoke about being a really talented junior, if there's, and I'm sure there's a lot of young people and great people that listen to your show. Well, I know there is. You're the biggest show in Australia. But I think the message for me was early days just got so... I don't want to say ahead of myself, but I just didn't. I didn't know how how to work hard. I think, like as a young kid, and not why, why would I know how to work hard? Mm. You know, like I was hard on. Like I look back now, thinking, "Fuck, you're an idiot!" Like, why didn't you just do this? Like, I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea because I'd probably just been naturally ta- gifted, and things had just worked. And so you hadn't had to work to that point. I, to get where you I had. wouldn't say I hadn't had to work, but I didn't have any like adversity. Right. Like I didn't get not picked for anything. Your you know? talent levels yeah, carried, yeah. carried you through. Yeah, just carried you through. I think when I got to the club, yeah, I just thought like, cool, it's going to happen. I'm going to get cheered off, play 300 games and, you know, like win a couple of flags. How good is this going to be? It's easy as. And just got <laughs> smashed in the face. Like that is not how it works here, mate. Like, right. You know. Who was the first coach when you got there? Brett Ratton. Okay. Yes, I had Brett Ratton. And <laughs> I had this, remember this time? Cool. That I... And this is good coaching by Brett, by the way. This is, See, this where is why I was it's at. great to have a guest on that's heavily involved in podcasts because they know that podcasts are story driven. Story driven. Story driven. Well, I don't even know. I just like talking about shit. So stories, but tell your story about Brett Ratton. Brett Ratton is a great coach who I really, really rate and respect. But I remember this time when I was 18 and I, as I said, I had no idea what I was doing, rocking up at the club. Some days I'd kick three goals and some days I'd, I wouldn't have a touch in the what, BFL. What did you weigh? I was about 67 kilos, so I wasn't up, a big boy. A pin-up for skinny boys, you and Cade Simpson. Bigger they are. I loved four. you both. Um, and I remember I had like three possessions this day. And in, the, in the VFL? In the VFL. And Rats like came up to me and he just goes, what are you doing? I was like, oh, you know, I just wasn't sure. I didn't feel that good before the game. He goes, no, no, no. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, not sure like what you're asking. And he's like, like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> just I heard you the first time. And I was time. like, oh, I actually don't know. And right. then he just walked off. And I was, that was a point where he hit me going like, well, you literally have no idea like what you're doing. Like you thought you had the world figured out as most young men do. Mm. You have no idea what you're doing. And probably kick-started that journey on like, all right, let's work it out and see what, what works and what doesn't. And had some incredible feedback from a lot of guys at that age of like, just how to learn how to work hard and, you know, learn how to be a sponge, something I'd never done. Feedback, I couldn't get feedback. If you if you gave me feedback, it was like you were attacking me and my family and my bloodline. I was like, okay. how dare you give me feedback, like, you know, as a young kid. Wow. And coaches would be like, mate, 
the moment you don't get feedback is when people give up on you. So for me now, it's just like that's a big thing is seeking mm. it, you know, being a sponge, asking what I can do, knowing that it's to make me better, not to attack me. Um, so, yeah, really struggled with those sorts of things as a young man and that just comes down to ego and, um, you know, you want to be right and you want to back yourself in, which are all elements of a successful person, yep. but you've got to know when to come the other way. So I talked about the fact that, you know, I, I, we don't have many footballers on the show. We had Brendan Favola, early doors, a legend of the Carlton Footy Club. We had Chris Judd and, again, two-time Brownlee medalist Cyril, my favourite player. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, Cyril. I've, yeah. Oh, my God. We had Cyril. Yeah. Um, my favourite player of all time. So they're all very, very successful footballers. Got amazing stories to tell. But you have an amazing story to tell because you can answer the questions that these guys can't. You've played 41 games over seven playing seasons, eight seasons in total. So uh, Rising Star, 2014 nomination, eight games. Then you played 18, then 2016-11, then 2017 one game, then you got delisted and moved to the Giants. What is it like? And I ask this with the greatest possible respect. What is it like? We never hear from the non-star. Yeah. We never hear from the 23rd bloke picked. If there's injuries, he gets a game. What is that like in a professional environment when you're not the man, which all the guests on this show are typically the man or the woman? That's such a good question. Um, I will say just on that point around the 41, you know, the, as I said before, my I look at my career as a uni degree of just life yep. because if you look at it like this, and this way I explain it, I've been to one of the biggest clubs in Australia, one of the smallest clubs in Australia. I've been a rising star. I've been a 26-year-old hack. I've been in the best 18 and come top 10 in BNF. Yes, I've so been 18 delisted. games, 2015, yeah. you're killing it. Um, I've played in wooden spoon teams. I've played in teams that have gone to grand finals. So it's incredible the amount of hmm. e- experiences that you have and – you know, don't get me wrong, I would have loved to have been Scott Pendlebury and played 300 games and won a flag, two flags. But in a way, I've experienced more than these guys. So I wear that as a badge of honour. Um, and I'm eternally grateful for that. Like, I've literally experienced everything. But how difficult is it? it it's difficult, but it sets you up for life because life isn't easy. No, like, no. I'm not trying to get, like, you know, but it's, it's not. not. So, so go to our schools yeah. and explain this to our kids that life isn't easy. Well, I so get you don't very all, hard on You don't AFL all get players. a ribbon. You don't. And, you know, I've signed a three-year deal. My last four contracts are one year. So every year I was begging for another year. You're waiting at the end of a season yep. to, if they can't pick anyone else up better than you, okay, we'll give you a contract. Which is, that's business and that's great. Yep. Like, we, we can't get rid of that. Like, they can't go, oh, this is hurting Dylan's feelings because that's mm. the nature of the game. That's high-performance sport. Like that's, And there's a beauty to that, that there is. Um, but, yeah, each year, you know, I was I was in that position for four years. And, yeah, it was extremely difficult. Like I'm not going to lie, it was, it was terrible. But I look back now and it's probably the best four years ever because what a blessing to teach me like about – I had four years – to set up what I was going to do next or yeah. to know what I had to do or to know that hunger and grit to take into the next season. Like I didn't have the security to not work hard or not do things outside of the club or not make the most of every uh, yeah. networking dinner with the club sponsor or when I spoke to the president to do this. And, you know, you've got to play the game and it was awesome. It was it was very challenging but it was bloody difficult. Like, and, yeah, being that guy is not cool. Like there was games where – you know, I was the 23rd player and I knew that. And when I had a meeting with Leon transparently, he said to me, you... Leon, 
Cameron at yeah. the Giants. And I went up there and had a meeting with him and he said, we're not getting you here to play every week. I said, that's fine. Um, I said to him, I think you're wrong because you're dumb if you're not thinking, you know, I'm not mm. going there to make up the numbers. I said, I think you're wrong. I'd love to prove you wrong. I'm going to try to. And he said, that's all we can ask for. And I was like, sweet, played two games, but it was awesome. So who's the best footballer you played with? I think the best footballer mm. I've played with, oh, it's... So, so in the player profile, you couldn't narrow anything down to under three. I know, and I'm not going to name it. I'm not going to be able to do that you can, either. You can give it three. Chris Judd, yep. obviously. Yep. Played in his last game ever that he um, did, his, did knee. his knee. Yep. And then my two guys that I love and just, you know, modern day stars and two really good guys that I'm lucky to call friends, Jeremy Cameron and Toby Green. Okay. So, like, so we got Judd, Cameron, and Green. Yep. Did you have the ability to be as good a player as them? Did you look at them and think they are more talented than I can ever be or was it – what stopped you being those blokes? Did yeah, you have the talent to be those blokes? It's a great question. Um, I don't think they're more talented than a lot of AFL players. Like obviously Chris Judd's probably the exception. Yep. Like, so you know, so if, you're, if you're taking yourself back yeah. now with the experience and you're saying a deal, okay, you can get to that level if you do this. Mm. What weren't you doing? Yeah, it's a great question. I've probably spent a lot of time looking at this and I think the big answer I used to think was, well, I didn't work hard enough. That's not true. I worked so, like I worked so hard. I can't imagine you not no, working hard. No, I did. I really worked hard because I'm a big believer in like no matter what happens in your career, that the next phase is actually real tallying of what you did mm-hmm. in that career, if you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. you're not going to get guys that don't work hard and then not, it doesn't, it, it just magically works. Yep. So a lot of those things have transferred and it's, you know, gone well post that. Um to be completely honest, like I really, really struggled with performance anxiety, like more than, and I only realized that like this year, like how bad it was for me when I played footy. So how did it manifest itself? Um, it got to, you know, stages where, and this is probably as soon as I got picked up and even maybe my under 18 and 17th year, but more, worse at AFL because it was performance based and publicly, but I got to the stage where I would like go out there and I'd be hoping to like tear my hammy off the bone. I know that sounds so weird and saying it out loud now is a little bit embarrassing, but like I, I was just, just fuck, I don't know what it was. I seriously can't. What, I, what were you, what were you fearful of? Not being good enough or failing or. It's funny because I almost, when I was playing AFL, I didn't have the anxiety. I was enjoying, I loved it. But when I was playing VFL, it's almost like you've got to do something special today to get back in. So you're putting the pressure on there yourself. There was a pressure. Okay. And I just really, and I never, I'm the biggest advocate for mental health. You know, it's what I do now is helping people. Yes. Well, hopefully spreading that message. But I didn't want to tell anyone because I was like, I'm a son of, you know, here, I'm cold and I'm meant to, who's, what player would go out there and hope of these things? Yep. You know, I'm, I should be the luckiest person in the world, but I just couldn't get through a game without, like, just freaking out. And these you know? weren't conversations you could have never, with anyone? Never had one, never, because I was just too scared that they'd tell the coach and then the coach would be like, what, what, what's wrong with this bloke? That's weird. Right. Um, so so you see there's more a mental difference between it's definitely you mental. and – Well, there's a, mental is everything. Yeah. Mental is – every player's got similar talent. Like, there's – there's, and Toby would say this himself. If it was on physical attributes, yes, he's strong – He's not the best kick. He's not the best of a lot of things, but he's just got this dogged passion, grunt, um, grit 
those things you can't... You can't test for at the draft camp. You can't test for them, no. So in the rest of your life, were you able to keep things on track when you were trying to get a game in footy or does it cloud the rest of your life? It's really, yeah. And to be honest, that's why it's probably come to fruition for me was like when I left, I haven't played footy since. And that's not probably a little bit because of that, but also the fact that I didn't want to be judged on just that one thing and wanted to learn who I was outside of it. But I probably got to, I was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to play footy anymore. Now this anxiety thing won't happen. And it just popped up in other areas. And it popped up in other areas of my life and I was like, far out, like I need to get on top of this. So you thought it done with it, with, with the not having the pressure yeah. of playing footy, you thought it wasn't going to be I thought it there. wasn't going to be there anymore and it still was um, and it still is. And it's something that just I deal with and I live with and I've got great, um, it, mate, a lot of people live with, it's not like it's, What does it feel like to you? For me, it's- um, Can I ask that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, and this is a thing with anxiety. It sounds so silly when you say it out loud, like anything. Um, but for me, it's just this, I'm a catastrophizer. I'm- What does that um, mean? Like the, what, so what's the worst possible thing that can everything happen? Everything that could happen. I've measured it on every single level of what is the worst possible outcome of everything. Jeez. And it's funny. It's not funny, but it's funny in a way because I have this really weird relationship with anxiety because it makes me who I am. It makes me good at what I do because I don't leave stones unturned and I- I work, I can work extremely, you know, once I'm in something, like... I'm, you're obsessive. I'm obsessed. I've seen like that about you. But and that's I, why you're successful. But it's also, it, it's, it is. So it's but your it's greatest also, weakness is It's your my greatest, greatest fear and it's my, it's my yeah, greatest strength it. and it's my greatest weakness. And it's matching the, it's matching how to use it as a strength, but also how do I manage it in a way that doesn't get... Uh, and uh, when, when it's becoming a day or a situation when it's becoming unmanageable, what yeah. do you do to get yourself out of it? Yeah, I have a tool belt. Like we talk about it a lot, um, you know, a lot of a great uh, psychologist that I see, you know, monthly. Um, I have other, so many tools and it's, when I say tool belt, it's like everything I've learned from people I speak to or my psych, we mm. add it to the tool belt. Hmm. And it's like breathing, okay? There's breathing techniques, there's meditation, there's mindfulness, there's the David Butterfant story that you just go, you know what, <laughs> I need to get this done. Mm-hmm. And there's all these different pieces that, you know, techniques that are I've picked up over the years that I can call on when I need them. Um, and a big one, you know, which is really funny, I had this, you know, with the whole just things that, you know, life pops up. I had this sort of really anxious episode like a while ago and I hate, when I say I hate meditation, like I'm not massive on it. But it got to the stage where nothing on the tool belt was working and I was like, I'm going to try this out. And it was just unbelievable. Was I just it? listened to a guided meditation on my phone, Spotify, you can look them up, they're everywhere. And I was like, fuck, that's awesome. So it's not one thing, it's just like there's a million things there that I can just call upon hmm. and try and use them. Um, a big one for me is cold, like ocean, the ocean and, and nature. Um, I know we've got the big wave behind us, but when I, and I know you, you love the ocean. Hmm. But when I was in Sydney, like the connection to the water was was immense and just, um, you know what the feeling is when you go under a wave mm. and you feel like your body, that that little like, it does a bit of a worm yep. through your body. And I used to like just do four dives under the water and I'd feel like the water like flushing out the anxiousness and out my toes and just like go through. 
And I loved that. That was so good. And then when I moved to Melbourne, I really struggled because it wasn't, I didn't have the water anymore. So that's why I've adapted golf. And I love the folks it brings. I love walking around in nature. Um, this is going to sound really weird now, but I, I love being close to trees. Right. Because it just, I just feel like, you know, trees give us oxygen. Because if I play golf, it increases my levels of anxiety. Yeah, right. Well, I'm not good enough for it to really like right. factor in. I don't, right. you know, if I if I hit a 300, you know, it doesn't really matter. Right. But I love being in, the, and I spend a lot of time in the trees, mind you. So I just love being <laughs> near, yeah, near the leaves oh, and I stuff. Get that. I, get, I get that. That is the end of Dylan Buckley, part A. So much more coming your way on part B.